Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, that you give us, all who believe in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that now, as your word is read and as I seek to, to preach and communicate it clearly, God, would your Holy Spirit be at work um, helping me to have thoughts and words that are pleasing in your sight? And God, would you, would you help us? Uh, we, we sang earlier as a prayer that you would open the eyes of our heart that we could see you high and lifted up, that we could, we could respond to you in the way that you deserve. And God, I pray that you would do that now as we open up your word and seek to hear from you. And we don't want to just hear, we want it to change and transform and mold and shape us into who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to finish Mark 12 today, which means we will be two-thirds of the way through the gospel of Mark. And so you can... Get your Bible open up. We're going to be reading in just a moment Mark 12, starting in verse 38. Uh, Sometimes, uh, I know that there are mechanical-minded people among us that when something goes wrong with your car, you just know by the sound that it makes or what it does that you know what the problem is. Now, I'm not one of those types of people. Uh, The mechanical-minded people, they don't like new cars because everything has to be run through some sort of computer diagnostic system to figure stuff out. I like that because I don't know anything about what would be going wrong if there wasn't a light that flashed up on my dash to tell me that something is wrong. So I'm very grateful for those kinds of little lights and the warnings that they give us. This morning we're going to be looking at a passage in the Gospel of Mark in which Jesus is going to run some heart diagnostics on some people. And so my hope is that as we look at this, that that God will be working through His Spirit to help us to examine our own hearts. That that as we see Jesus kind of examining the hearts of some people, that we would allow Him to also examine our own hearts and check our own motives. And if there is a warning light that needs to be going off so that we pay attention to something that maybe we've ignored up to this point, that God might be pleased to do that in us today. So that's my hope as we get into Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 38. And if you're able to, would you please stand as we read God's Word? Mark 12, starting in verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Then he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You can be seated. If you notice in your bulletin, uh, there is inside a spot for sermon notes, and then to kind of have an outline of where we're going this morning. Also a life group guide, so that if you're in a life group, and even if you're not, a way to help you dig a little bit deeper and apply some of what you're hearing today. 
You see that the first point, oh, by the way, the stuff that says coming up on the bottom, I made a mistake on that, and it's pretty much all wrong. So just, just ignore that. Um, it, it's just not right. Uh, it is James 3, 13 to 18 that you'll be looking at next week, but it's not about faith and works. Uh, I looked at chapter 2 and wrote that down. So anyway, um, and then everything else was pushed off a week. I just I made a mistake down there. So disregard that. But this is the outline for the message today. And you'll see that really kind of two main points. One is that we are going to start by looking at Jesus' diagnostics on some religious people. We saw them right away here in verse 38. They're people called scribes. These scribes were biblically knowledgeable, well-educated, highly respected people in that culture. They were religious leaders. But Jesus isn't commending them, saying, hey, check these guys out. They know their Bible really well. You ought to respect them. Actually, Jesus is giving, look at verse 38, a warning about these guys. Jesus is seeing something in their behavior that's showing him something in their hearts. And so verse 38, he's talking to his disciples and he says to them this, beware of the scribes. So he's not saying, hey, look at them as an example. He's saying, listen, here's some things that I'm seeing and this is showing what's wrong in their hearts. So Jesus is running some heart diagnostics on some religious people, and he's finding, I see in here, I think four bad motives. Four bad motives as he's checking their hearts, and there's a number of symptoms that are pointing to those bad motives. So what are they? Let's go ahead and look. Bad motive number one. Bad motive number one, being impressive. These guys, it seems, are motivated by being Impressive. How do we see that? Well, we see that in a couple spots. One spot, it says they like to walk around in long robes. Okay, now, they would have dressed in things that distinguished them from everybody else. So there was kind of the common Jewish dress of the day. But these guys, the scribes, would wear these long flowing robes that were a little more ornately decorated. And it seemed that Jesus is warning them, not because Jesus is anti-long robe, but because Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts, that they would wear a long robe to stick out and to be impressive to other people. There also, it says later, for a pretense making long prayers. Again, is Jesus against long prayers? No, but he knows what's going on in the heart. What's going on in the heart of these people that are making long prayers, seemingly they're doing it pretentiously, that they are praying long prayers, not because they're having great fellowship and interceding for lots of but they're praying long prayers because that must make them look impressive to other people. That other people will look at them, raise their eyebrows, nod their head, and say, Wow, did you hear, did you hear him pray? It sounded like he came straight from the Bible. That guy's good. And he just kept going and going, right? So they're wearing long robes, making long prayers. Seems to show their heart. Motive is that they want to be impressive. They also want to be popular. That's bad motive number two. They want to be popular. See that at the end of verse 38 where it says they like greetings in the marketplaces. Now again, does Jesus have anything against people liking to get greeted in the marketplace? I don't think so. But the way that things were typically done at this time is if a scribe, remember I said they were well respected, if they walked down the street or if they walked into the marketplace and you were there, you know what the people would do? They would all rise. They would all rise because they, and 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 Jesus sees the hearts of these scribes, and they know that they're, they're thriving on this. They're, they're just, they're feeding off of this. 
that they like their greetings in the marketplaces. They like it when people show them that kind of honor and respect. They like to be popular. They like to be important. We can see that. That's bad motive number three. They like to be important. It says, and they have the best seats in the synagogues. In the synagogues, there were these places actually called in Greek first seats. And those first seats would be reserved for people of high rank or people that were good teachers, and they would face everybody else. And so these people seem to be motivated. These scribes, these religious people are motivated by being important. They think they deserve to sit in the first seats. They also think they deserve the best. This is bad motive number four. They think they deserve the best. It says, and the places of honor at feasts. When they showed up to a feast, they didn't mind that there were other people at the feast, but they wanted to be sure they had the best spot. They had the best cut of meat on their plate, right? That they sat in the place of honor at feasts. They believed they deserved the best. And so we look at the scribes and Jesus' diagnostics of, well, here's the symptoms, here's what's going on, but here's what I think that's showing in their hearts. And I think it's important for us to slow down and to say, are we like scribes ever? Are those kind of things the motivations of our heart? We need to stop and check our own motives. Are we sometimes motivated by being impressive to other people? Yeah. I would say that we probably are. Are we sometimes motivated by trying to be popular, trying to win other people over, to, to, to shape other people's image of who we are? Are we sometimes motivated by that? A lot of times we kind of pin that on, like, if you're in middle school and high school, like, this is, this is something that we say you struggle with, right? Like, this is your problem. You all want to be popular, and as we get to be adults, we don't care about that so much anymore. I'm not sure that's totally true. I don't think we, we, we ever really grow out of that desire to be popular, and that that motivates a lot of the things that we do. We want to fit in. One way that I see this is, is that, that we, we have, as parents, this desire for our kids to fit in. Um, when they don't, and we really want them to, and so we will, in many cases, do whatever it takes so that our kids can fit in, can, can be amongst those that, that are the right group. And so we'll... We'll do whatever it takes. I mean, if that means we got to give up any sort of family time so that we can just get our kids involved in all sorts of hours of extracurricular activities so that they can fit in and, and be, be in with their group, then we'll go ahead and do that. We'll sacrifice money to get them the things that they think that they need. As, as our kids get older, I know this is going to be more and more of a struggle for us as parents. That, that we want our kids to fit. We want our kids to be popular. I mean, maybe not in the in the in the one sense of the word, but we want them to be well-liked and well-loved and to fit in and not to stick out. That's a normal thing for parents. And as Kirsten and I were thinking about that, um, there was something that, that came to Kirsten. It was a, a, le- a mom's letter to her child um, that we came across probably a year ago, two years ago maybe. And so we printed this off and actually put it inside one of our cupboards so that we can remember it. It's a little letter that she called Otherness. Um, and it's really good. So I'm just going to read, not the whole thing, but a little portion of it. This is a mom writing to her 13-year-old. If you're a parent um, of kids really whatever age, I think you'll be able to resonate with this. Here's what it says. Today, you came to me sad, and I wanted to comfort you. 
your friends spoke of owning things you don't own and watching movies you don't watch, going to places you don't go, wearing things that you don't wear, and you were feeling very sharply your otherness today, what comfort can I give you? How can I pull the sharp thorn of comparison from your tender flesh? Mothers don't like to see their children hurt. My own heart wants to find the shortest path to the removal of your pain. It's a pain that spills over onto me because I remember being 13 and because I know that you're being singled out for boundaries that you didn't even set. So should I comfort you by giving you the things that separate you from the well-provided, worldly-wise woman girls at the lunch table? Here's what you must come to see. What the lunch table calls your enemy, I call your friend. Otherness is a sensation not to be dulled or diminished, but to be cultivated and cherished. So though it goes against every mothering instinct, I will not pull the thorn from your flesh. Not because I want to withhold comfort, but because there is no true comfort in a lie. See, this world is not our home. We are sojourners, travelers, on our way to the only true comfort the human heart can know. And I will not help you populate your life with things that lessen your grip on this reality. Because I love you, yes. And because I love your heavenly Father above all else. And I will give an account to him for whether I have raised citizens of earth or citizens of heaven. If, if, if that was our attitude together as parents, and that was our attitude as, as children and youth in this church, that, that it was more important for us to prepare our kids to be citizens of heaven than to fit in well here on this earth, I think that would change some things. That, that I would rather have a church of awkward kids who love Jesus than a church of kids who are homecoming kings and homecoming queens who can get along really well with everybody else. We have this desire to be popular, and in that way we're like the scribes. We have a desire, I think, many times to be important and honored. We're more like the scribes than we think, and and it was so good for me, personally, just a, a little confession to you, it was so good for me to be in this passage studying this this week myself because God just had to point out to me through the power of His Holy Spirit working in me that I am very, very scribish sometimes. That in many ways I'm a religious person, I'm a religious leader, and if I'm honest, I like to impress people, I like to be popular, I like to be important, and I like to be honored. I say often, because it's true, that I want us to be a church molded by God's word and motivated by God's glory as we make disciples throughout God's world. That's what I want. And I want on my own. I don't just want that for our church. I want me, myself, I want to be motivated by God's glory. That's what I want for me. I want to, and many times I am, I am often in awe of God and my desire is that that I would with my life and with my words, shine a spotlight on him so more and more people come to see him as important and honor him above all else. I'm motivated by that, but the work that the Holy Spirit did in my heart this week was to show me that most of the time my motives at best are pretty mixed. They're not always pure. That's not always what motivates me. A lot of times I'm motivated by other stuff. 
I mean, I want to preach good sermons that bring attention and glory and honor to Jesus. That's what I want to do. But if I'm honest, God was showing me this week that I also want to preach good sermons so that you can tell me that I preach good sermons. Right? That, that, that I want to listen to and love and counsel the people that God has entrusted to me. I want to do that well. I want to do that when they're broken so that I can point them to the hope that comes only in Jesus. But if I'm honest, God pointed out to me this week that sometimes I'm also motivated by wanting people, I've got a little bit of a Messiah complex, by wanting people to think that they can put their hope in me just a little bit too. And that, that I want to lead this church well. To, to lead it well so that we can grow to make disciples who make disciples. And I'm motivated by that. But God had to also show me, and he does this many times, that a lot of times my motivation is also for our church to grow so that I can feed my own selfish ambition and envy. So God needed to show me some stuff this week. And sometimes in my zeal to, to, to make things happen, I push myself pretty hard and God had to to wake me up to that a little bit this week too and I'm so grateful for the convicting work of the Holy Spirit sometimes that comes through my wife she and the kids one morning noticing that I was uh, pretty stressed and uh, I left and, and went off and and Kirsten and the kids sat and prayed for me she let me know this by sending me a text later saying hey me and the kids prayed for you this morning and she said, remember, you can't be Superman and do everything, and you can't do anything in your own strength. It's a good reminder for me. God's given me an incredible wife who sees a lot of the stuff that most of you don't see and chooses to love me anyway. She prays for me and knows that God's work needs to be done on my own heart. So I needed to recognize this week I'm a lot more scribish than I'd like to admit. That way more than I'd like to admit I'm not motivated solely by God's glory, but I'm often motivated by a desire to impress people, to be popular, to be important, and to be honored. Is that you as well? I mean, those things that I said, I mean, like, I want to preach good sermons. I'm not going to stop doing that. I don't, I mean, I, maybe, maybe, maybe like, well, when are you going to start? Uh, uh, but, but like, I don't want to stop, I don't want to stop loving you and listening to you and counseling you. I don't want to stop leading the church. I don't want to stop. Those are all good things. But good things done with bad motives yield bad results. Good things done with bad motives yields bad results. You can see that right here in this passage. You know how you see it? I don't know exactly what this means, but it's not good. Because look at verse 40. One of the things that Jesus is warning the disciples about because of these scribes is these scribes are people who devour widows' houses. More than likely, that means they're taking advantage of widows financially in some way. Scribes were well-educated, well-respected, but not often rich. They would, they would uh, get their money from other people, and it seems like they're taking advantage financially of widows. This is This is wrong. God, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you want to see God's heart of compassion. It seems to beat especially for vulnerable people, for widows, for orphans, for foreigners. And God commands His people to have compassion towards widows and orphans and foreigners. And so the fact that these religious leaders are doing the very opposite of that, and rather than caring for the widows, they are taking advantage of them in some way, devouring their houses... 
This brings about a stern warning from Jesus. Beware of these people. And then you see the end. They will receive the greater condemnation, it says at the end of verse 40. They will receive the greater condemnation. God is going to judge them. And listen, on the outside, they might be doing everything right, but God's judgment is not based on our religious activity. If it was, the scribes probably would have been fine. But God's judgment is not based on our religious activity. God's judgment is based on our heart and the motives that spring from it. And as the prophet Jeremiah says, if we're honest, our heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Good things done with bad motives can yield bad results. The truth is our hearts need to be checked. It's not trivial. You can't keep driving with that light flashing that says check motives. If that light is flashing, and it should be flashing probably for all of us, we need to pull over and deal with that rather than going on. Because if we keep driving with that light on, something could blow up. Ask God. I did that this week, and it wasn't fun necessarily, but it was good. Ask God, God, would you come and would you check the motives in my heart? What is it, God? If, if I'm honest with you and honest with myself, what is it that motivates me in my life? It might not be exactly what you hope to hear, but it might be sin that you can confess and repent and turn from. Second thing, Jesus diagnostics on rich people. We get that in verses 41 to 44. Verses 41 to 44 describe a situation that are really a contrast to what we saw in these first verses. Jesus is holding up these people, these scribes, as a negative example, saying, don't be like them. Watch out. They've got some bad motives in their hearts. And then he observes what's happening as people are putting some money in the treasury putting some money in the offering box and Jesus is watching what's going on and he's going to contrast the kind of what can I get? That seems to be what the scribes are all about, right? What can I get? How can I get honored? How can I get the best seat? How can I get people to say and to respect me? How can I get people to think that I'm important? They're wondering what can I get? But he's going to contrast them with this lady here, this poor widow whose question seems to be very different. Her question is, not what can I get, but what can I give? What can I give is this lady's question. So, first of all, though, we have just an observation. Look at verses 41 and 42. Jesus sits down opposite the treasury and watches the people putting money into the offering box. So we here at our church, we pass a tray around. There was a box that that everybody would come to and put their, their money into, and Jesus just sat right across from it and was just watching, just, just observing. And here's what he observed. Many rich people put in large sums. Okay? There was rich people coming by. They put in large sums of money. And a poor widow came, and she put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Okay, so you see, you get the picture? Just Jesus sitting and observing people coming. And, and as I don't know if people are lining up or exactly how they did it, but first, some rich people come and they're putting in, you know, emptying out bags of money or whatever and putting it in there. And then this poor widow comes. She puts in two small copper coins that total a penny or one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. 
not much at all. One sixty-fourth of one day's wage is what this lady puts in. And it seems to kind of make sense. I mean, right? On the outside, of course, you would expect that a poor widow who has no means of income on her own doesn't have much to put in, so she doesn't put much in. And rich people that have a lot to put in, they put a lot in. That makes sense. So you would maybe expect Jesus to commend the people that are doing what they can, both the poor widow and the rich people, and say, look it, they're doing a great job. It's not totally what Jesus does, because again, Jesus judges the motives of the heart. And so we're going to see Jesus do some more assessment and diagnostics in verses 43 and 44. It's going to be a little picture of how Jesus does math. It's not quite how we do math. It's a new way. It's like the core curriculum kind of math. It's like it's different, right? Jesus' math has more to do with heart motives than dollar totals. So he notices rich people putting in stacks of money, but, but probably knowing, again, knowing their hearts, knowing that as they're putting in large sums of money, they got whole big stacks left at home, right? That they might be putting in a lot right here, but they got a whole stack just waiting for them at home. What they're putting in is comfortable, it's customary, but it's not hurting. Right? It's comfortable, it's customary, it's not hurting, though. They're just putting in a lot of money because they have a lot of money. They have everything they need plus a lot more, and then this poor widow comes up. This poor widow comes up, and her question isn't seeming to be, well, what can I, what can I get? She's got basically nothing, it seems. Yet she comes in, and her question, her motivation in her heart is, what can I give? And she says, well, I could give these two small copper coins. That's what I got today. And so she drops both of those in. And Jesus says here that she puts in everything she had, all she had to live on. She was giving not what was customary, not what was comfortable, But she was giving sacrificially. She was giving until it hurt. She was giving so that she wasn't sure if she'd get breakfast the next morning. That's the motivation in her heart for giving, was was not the question, what can I get or what do I need for me? She was just wondering, what can I give? And so she gave seemingly everything she had. We see this later on in Scripture as well, on, on a bit of a larger scale. Now, Paul is writing a letter to a church in Corinth, a pretty well-to-do city and a pretty well-to-do church. And as Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, a pretty rich yet pretty stingy church, he wants to show them something. He could have told them this story. Maybe they'd already heard this story. But, but he tells them of another church. There's another church, the Macedonian church. The Macedonian church is not wealthy. So you've got rich, stingy church in Corinth, And then you have this not-so-wealthy church in Macedonia. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he holds up the Macedonians as an example. So go ahead and turn there if you'd like to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're just going to read a couple of verses from the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 because it just really illustrates what Jesus is teaching here. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul, writing to the rich, stingy church in Corinth, holds up this church of Macedonia by saying this, We want you to know, brothers, 
about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You see that math? Kind of strange, isn't it? They have an abundance of joy plus extreme poverty equals an overflow of generosity. Super, super poor and super, super happy equals giving a lot of money. Okay? That's what you see. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. He's like, I didn't... I, I wasn't begging them. I wasn't saying, oh, please, like I, I, didn't, I didn't say, hey, plant this seed, call 1-800-whatever, and you'll get a blessing from God. I wasn't trying to twist their arm into giving. They gave of their own accord, and not just according to their means, even beyond their means. And then look at verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Who was begging Who? It wasn't, it wasn't the traveling preacher begging this church to give more. It was the super poor, super happy church saying, Hey, can we please just give you some money to bring to the saints in Jerusalem? Can we, can we please do that? Love that. Verse 5, And this, not as we expected, like kind of blew us away, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See what was motivating this this extremely poor church in Macedonia to give so generously was the abundance of joy that they had in just knowing Jesus. They had given themselves first to Him. It wasn't so much about their money. It was about their heart. And that's what Jesus is teaching here in this passage about this poor wood. It's not so much about the money. I mean, if you've got a whole heap of money over here and two small copper coins equaling a penny, which one's bigger? And in Jesus' math, it's the two small copper coins. You wonder, well, why? How, how does that add up? That doesn't seem to make sense. And again, it's because Jesus' diagnostic tool checks the heart. He's not looking for the, the total dollar amount at the end of the day. He's looking at the heart. So a $10 bill is greater than a $500 check if the one giving the $10 is giving it more sacrificially than the one giving $500. So as we think of how this applies to us, I don't know. Um, Jesus was sitting down watching what people give. I don't do that. I don't, I don't have access to the spreadsheet that, that, that keeps track of what people give so that we can give you a receipt at the end of the year for tax purposes. I don't see that. I don't know. The only family I know what gives is just our own family. So all I know, that's all I want to know. I don't know this. But I would guess that Jesus could make the same observation in our church, that some people give much and some people give little. I would assume that the observation that Jesus made here could also be made in our own church. And I don't think the question so much is, is about amount that people give but it's about our heart. That's what Jesus cares about, right? So a couple of questions then to ask ourselves. First of all, question number one, what motivates you more? Is it the question, what can I get, or the question, what can I give? Let me just submit to you, as a sinner, as a sinner 
And as an American, most likely the natural answer to that question is, you're probably motivated more than you think by the question, what can I get? That's just naturally how we think. We don't naturally think, what can I give? We naturally think, what can I get? So when we receive income of any sort, whether our income comes in the form of a paycheck or whether it comes in the form of a direct deposit or just cash from somebody or maybe, maybe you receive a gift from somebody, our first inclination, isn't it, usually, to think of, well, what can I get? We make a budget or prioritize where our money will go by first thinking of all the things that we think that we probably need. Or things we at one time thought we needed and now we're still paying for them. Right? So that's the way that we typically do stuff. So we get income and we would, we would prioritize our money and, and send it out based on, well, here's all the things that I thought I needed. I thought I needed this phone and I thought I needed this type of data plan and I thought I needed internet access and I thought I needed cable. I thought I needed that car and then I needed that car. Whatever it was that we thought that we needed and now our money comes in and it's going out right away to pay for it because we have asked ourselves primarily, we've been motivated by the question, what can I get? I'm going to have income. What can I get with it? Right? And that's what drives us most of the time. And so when on a Sunday morning the offering plate comes around, we have opportunities in other ways to be generous. We just can't be very generous because we have already determined, well, we need these things first. And now with what is left over, I can give whatever is still comfortable. Because I need to keep some money in my pocket in case i got to go out to eat or whatever. Right? But what if we were motivated more by the question, as the poor widows seem to be, what can I give? Not what's comfortable for me. Not, not what, can I, what can I do that will still allow me to live exactly the way I want to live and give a portion, but what can I give? What can I give? Some of you, this is the way that you do it. When your income comes in, you are first of all looking at, well, what can I give? I'm going to do that first. That the first thing I think of as my income comes in is I'm going to think of what can I give away. Not what can I get, but what can I give away. That that's the priority. For some, that's a tithe, which means 10%. Some, it's, it's more than 10%. Some, if you're average, it's about 3%. But what if, wherever we're at, we just asked ourselves the question, what can I give? And let that motivate our giving so that wherever we're at, we just said, you know what, I'm going to just, I'm going to figure out a way to give more. It might hurt in some other area, some other thing that I think I need, I might not get anymore. But what if I did that? What if we had a whole church full of people that asked that question? What can I give with that? Maybe even giving until it hurts. And I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for being a church that I think has many of us who are asking that question, what can I give? It's evidenced in the fact uh, that, that we look at every month in our leadership council meeting a report where giving is typically exceeding expenses. That's a result of you hopefully having the right motivation in your heart to give generously to the work that God is doing in and through this church. And because that has happened, just in this past year, we've had a lot of building improvements made that have been put off for some time because you've given generously. Thank you for that. We have, we've had so many children and youth hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ through VBS, through Awana. We've had many children and youth being discipled by one-on-one adult mentors. We've had 
kids being discipled in Sunday school and in youth groups. Many adults are growing in their love for Jesus and learning to study His Word as God, through His Word, equips them for every good work. We've had hurting people in this church being comforted by the many expressions of love that this body gives. We, we had so much given this last year above what our budget required that we could look at our budget and we could say, what needs are there? What can we give as a church? And so one of the things that we chose to do is, is knowing that our missions partners in Nigeria, Mary Beth, who was a part of this church, was a teacher here in town, and then, and then she moved and, and out to Nigeria to do some work there. Uh, and it's not short term. She's been there for a long time. And as she does that work there, they are ministering to families affected by HIV AIDS. And one of the things that they're doing there is they have, they have started a school that's been a while now. And their school outgrew the building they were in. And then they moved to another building. But that was supposed to be a clinic that they also started. And the clinic needed to move into the clinic. So the school needed to move out. And there's a school building. And so we voted a few weeks ago as a church, the members of the church, those that stayed and, and got together, we voted that we're going to send $15,000 so that they could purchase the building that they needed to turn into their school. We did that because you have been generous. And because I think, at least I hope, that many of us have been motivated by the question, what can I give? This afternoon, we're voting on the budget for next year. And a budget is just like what we hope will happen. We don't have a clue, <laughs> right? We, we don't know what's actually going to come in. It's going to depend on your continued generous giving. I hope that we have the same issue next year that we can be looking at because, of, because God's people have been motivated by, first of all, what God has done for them. What did He give for me? And in response to what He has given to me, I am going to give so that His name can be proclaimed both locally and globally and disciples can be made. I think we could do even more than we're going to say, but but we're going to be voting on a budget that's a little bit bigger than the budget we voted on at this time last year. The second question, though, that I want us to ask is this. This is the final question and an important question, and that is this. Does God have your heart? Does God have your heart? A couple of statements. God wants your heart more than he wants your money. God doesn't need your money. God wants your heart more than he wants your money. Another true statement. You can give your money without giving your heart. You could do that. You, you, could, you could not be motivated. You could be motivated by all sorts of different things and give a lot of money. You can give your money without giving your heart. But it's harder to give your heart without giving your money. It's harder to give your heart without also giving your money. See, we, we recognize when we come to faith in Jesus Christ that, that He's God. And everything we have belongs to Him anyway. And one of the ways that we give God our heart is by giving God our money. But those two things are tied together more than we'd like to think. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those things are tied together way more than we normally think. And so when we treasure our money, what we do is we hold on to it and we use it only for our own purposes. 
well, this is my money. I earned it, and I will do what I want with my money. And then money controls us. But when we give our money away, one thing that happens when we give our money away is we remind ourselves that this is not our God. This does not control me. And so that's one of the things that happens as you give your money away. If we all gave proportionately, we would consider what God has done for us in Christ, and we would cheerfully and willingly give much more than we're giving now. We would remember that this says a couple of verses later in 2 Corinthians 8, that the, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and though that He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ because He was willing for our sake to become poor so that we might become rich. I'm going to close by looking at this one verse that I've read many times, and I never even noticed it till this week because it's a whole list of things in there, and I, I never noticed one thing. Revelation chapter 5. I love the book of Revelation, especially those, those scenes where we get a little glimpse of what it's like in heaven. And Revelation 5 is one of those scenes. In Revelation 5, you see people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping Him. And there are angels numbering thousands upon thousands and elders, and they're all bowing down before the throne, and they are crying out words of worship and praise to Jesus. And one of the phrases that I've read many times, repeated many times, we sing it, and it's this. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy. Worthy is Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, to receive power. He's worthy to receive power, is He not? And wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. I've kind of like, I always, I always zone in on the glory passages in Scripture, so I hear glory there. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory. But I've, I've missed totally the fact that it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive wealth. Part of our, part if not all of our motivation for giving is not, well, the church could do this, or I'm going to feel less guilty if I do this, or the pastor said this. Who cares what I say? Let our motivation to give be the fact that the Lamb who was slain is worthy to receive wealth. Isn't He? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive wealth, to receive all of us receive our hearts he is worthy to receive all of that but above everything else what god wants is he wants your heart you given him your heart he has given us so much we are so grateful he is such a generous and gracious and faithful god and that's how we're going to close we're going to close by remembering that by singing a song about the great faithfulness of our god displayed to us in so many ways Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just recognize once again that all that we have is yours, that we ourselves, you say, if, if we are in Christ, we were bought with a price. That it cost Jesus his throne in heaven, that, that he would leave his throne and for our sake become poor that He would be subjected 
to the cruel punishment of an execution, of a death on a cross. He who was the only one who was ever innocent took that for us. Father, we are so grateful and so indebted. As we've sung before, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. God, would you help us this week by the power of your Spirit to examine our hearts, to recognize that that light that says check motives is on so that we would pull over, we would get things checked out, we would allow you to open us up and to say, here's the problem. But sometimes, God, would you you remind us of all the ways that we try to be impressive and try to be popular, try to be honored, try to be important and are motivated by that? Would you, would you show us all the times that we're motivated more by the question, what can I get, than we are by the question, what can I give? God, we need your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. And we want to gladly and willingly give you all that we have so that your name can be praised and exalted locally and globally. We know that everything we give is just a response to your faithfulness, which we saw first. And we open up Scripture and we see how you've been faithful to keep all of your promises. The greatest one, the promise of a Messiah, Jesus. So God, we praise you this morning for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.